0: on chain, oh, blues and gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the hill string gang. Ring.
1: Bloody Angola is a podcast covering actual events and is intended for mature
2: audiences. The subject matter discussed in no way reflects the personal opinions of the host or sponsors of this podcast. Thank you. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. Complete story of America's bloodiest prison. And I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton now look y'all we got a story for y'all today i would i would call this one of the great stories right uh,
1: certainly from the historical standpoint
2: there's no doubt we love to go back in time a little bit with bloody and and tell you uh, and tell you some of those stories and sometimes we're lucky enough that we have those stories from the eyes of the the actual inmates and as we've you know as we discussed many times on Angola, it's made up of camps, right?
1: Bloody right, Angola, right. camps. spread out for financial reasons because you know the 18,000 acre farm, yeah, the different camps are on uh, different regions so they can get the inmates to work uh, faster and stuff
2: like that. That's right, and a lot of times, it even uh. The camps will even be based on everything from, like, sexual preference right, right, to right, 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 severity right, right, of the right, crime. Right, right. You know, Camp Camp J, for example, which is now closed start. down, it, was was your CCR. Right, right. But it, and that wasn't even,
1: uh again, like Camp J or the CCRs they have now, that that's not what about what crime you commit on the outside. It's how you act. A on fool the inside. inside, that's right. Yeah, how fucking bad are you
2: if you go to prison
1: and you can't even follow the rules in prison?
2: Yeah, yeah, you got it. You're bad, dude. <laughs> There's no doubt, and not in a good way. Uh, now, one of those camps that uh, similar to Camp J that's no longer used was known as Camp H and. H. We're going to tell you about Camp H today, but as I said, it won't be from our eyes. It's actually from an inmate who was housed there. And in one of our most popular episodes, and if you hadn't caught it, go back and check out Old Wooden Ears. That's right. Uh, We read some passages from a lost diary of the former editor of the Angolite. And uh, today we're going to give you recollections of an inmate by the name of Clifford Hampton, who at 17 was charged and convicted of killing his girlfriend in an argument. On the advice of his attorney, Hampton
1: uh, would be discharged after 10 and a half years, as long as he behaved himself, y'all. I mean, he had to act right. And based on this, uh, Hampton pleaded guilty. And, well, he was actually sentenced to life and swiftly transferred to Bloody Angola on March 15th. 5th,
2: 1959. Dang, from, right? from 10 and a half years yeah. to life, got, they, got, he, they might have
1: tricked him. Yeah, he might he might have had a shitty lawyer. Yeah. Um, but to, y'all say so he goes down. And uh, look, this is when bloody Angola was truly bloody Angola, right? And I think my mama was probably still living on a beeline at this time. But two years after he arrived in Angola, Hampton was forced to defend himself against an inmate by the name of Casey Times, who now— he'd be dead and he lays at rest and what, what which we told y'all about uh, several episodes in point lookout cemetery. And now y'all that's where they bury the inmates where um, no one comes to claim the body, but Hampton stabbed times to death with a butter knife. He took from the prison kitchen, man, you know, that was yeah, vicious. Yeah. Hopefully he sharpened it a little bit. Yeah. He said, but he said, I did not want to kill an inmate. I just did not have a choice now all his time together. Hampton spent 60 years at bloody Angola concluding only after a law change that allowed juvenile sentence to be to life in prison to be allowed uh, the chance of parole. And he walked out of the gates, y'all bloody Angola at 78 years old. So, here is his recollection of the time he spent Camp H, particularly in the bloodiest years from 1965
2: to 1969. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he he basically tells that story, and he says, when I was still a young man in the early years of my life, uh, sentence imposed on me, For homicide, I committed at 17. I lived for several years in the old Camp H, directly south of the main prison complex in Angola. This narrative uh, that I'm about to tell you is my recollection of what daily life and work were like for the men housed at the old camp at a time when Angola was a brutal, mean-spirited place. Yes, it is. Minimal funding by the state with security provided by the convict guards Mm -hmm. and the handful of free men who gave them orders. Mm -hmm. It was the destination for all men convicted of felony crimes in Louisiana at that time, regardless of age, crime or mental capacity, except for a small uh, number of younger adults sent to the Louisiana Correctional and Industrial School at De Quincey. Right. Before I describe a typical day in the life at Camp H, I think it would be fitting to give a brief history of the inmates housed at this camp, beginning in the mid-1960s. I hope this will give a better understanding behind some of the happenings at Camp H that I will describe. In the late 1950s, when I first came to Angola, most men were housed in the open dormitories. The only cells other than the Red Hats, punishment cells, were found in cell blocks A, B, C, and D. And in the main prison, they were all considered strong cell blocks, housing some of the worst inmates. Right. And again, that's the ones that can't behave. Yep. Yeah, You don't get sent to those cell blocks for
1: stealing a piece of bread or something, not making you bad. It's for rape, murder,
2: whatever. Attack on a correction officer. That's right. And he says, I was living in in a cell in D block when I was forced to kill another prisoner in 1961. Mm-hmm. I was transferred from the blocks to CCR, which occupied several tiers in the reception center inside the main gate. RC is, as, as it was known also housed the death row tiers. That's right. I lived in a CCR cell for the next three years and 10 months. That's a long time. Jackie. Three, almost four years. Yeah. Now, in that time period, the prison administration made a big change in the blocks. I heard about it uh, up in CCR. B Block was emptied out and made into a block to house house weaker inmates. Prison officials began moving inmates into B who were having problems living in other areas of the prison. Prisoners who were... It's kind of like protective custody. Exactly. Prisoners who were being victimized or causing conflict, among other prisoners, as prisoners fought to dominate each other in the prison culture of the area. B Block became known as the Weaker Block as it filled up with these men. About a week before I reached my three years and ten months date in CCR, Warden Hayden Dees came to CCR. He was going down the tiers from cell to cell talking to everyone. He was asking everyone how they had been in CCR and how long they had been in CCR and why they were there. Security had made a big bust down the walk in the main prison. They had 19 guys locked up. That they wanted to move to CCR and they were trying to decide which 19 men they would move out of CCR right. to make room right. for those men. No to room be moved at the in. end, right? No room at the end. No so they're basically end. going down them tears. Y'all, again, this is Hampton's own recollection,
1: right? Prison officials made their decision, and the following week, they came by the cells telling guys to pack up their stuff. They were being moved. I was one of them. When it came time to be moved, the only difference was everyone else was packed up, but not me. I had not packed anything. I told them I was satisfied satisfied where I was and had no plans to move. Well, the security man told me the warden had approved these transfers, so we had to move. I insisted I was not going. The last time I was out there, I said I had to kill somebody. He replied, all right. You say you are not going, I'll be back. We know what that means. Mm. As soon as the security man left the tier, guys started calling down to me, telling me that I would do good to go because the officer was going to go get the goon squad. (laughs) (laughs) They would get me out of that cell one way or another. I thought about what they were saying and decided they made sense. When the goon squad guards arrived in my cell, I had just about finished packing. One of them asked me, oh, you decided to pack your stuff, huh? I said, yeah, I changed my mind. When we left the tier, I ran into someone of rank who knew me well. He told me he had heard that I did not want to leave, but that I would be all right. He said, I did not have to worry about getting into any trouble because they were sending me to B Block. And that is how I wound up in B For about a year, which is an indicator of the kind of people who would be living in Camp H later in the 1960s. right? So the move to H came about this way. The convict guards who had been living in one unit at Camp H were moved elsewhere. And on the Saturday before Labor Day, 1965, security moved all of B Block's inmates, with the exception of two or three men, into that unit in H. This would be my prison residence for the next 14 years. Camp H was a two-story building. It resembled a barn with a rounded roof. A wall down the middle divided the buildings into two sides. Blacks on one side and whites on the other. The prison was still segregated in these years. The upstairs on my side, the black side, was the main dorm, holding about 60 men. On the bottom level were two smaller dorms, one with 12 beds, and one with 11 big strike prisoners, like the rest of us, not trustees, who were housed across the road. At the top of the dividing wall, between the black side and the white side, a hole had been knocked in the wall, big enough to stick your hand through. Mm, sounds mm. like a mm. From my side, we could see into the white dorm and vice versa. We used to talk to each other through the hole and pass items to each other. I suppose the guards had made the hole before I arrived, no one made any effort to close it. I did not know where the white inmates in the other dorm at H had come from, but I was sure of one thing. Like us on the black side, they were men who had a history of problems in other parts of the prisons. Problems or not, the Camp H prisoners were expected to work a regular work schedule. We would go down to breakfast in the morning about 5 a.m. The meals at that time were usually big meals with good food prepared by cooks who took pride in their cooking. Sometimes we would make arrangements to bring an extra food back to the dorm to eat later, or a kitchen worker might bring us leftovers, if they had any, as they commonly did, and when they returned to the dorm. But in the wintertime, some of us would get extra coffee and different types of containers to bring back to the dorm. It might seem like a small thing, but I remember that on those winter nights, the coffee would help warm our bodies when it was cold.
2: Now, back in the dorm after breakfast, we were on our own until about 7 o'clock a.m. We knew we could expect to hear the loud shout, work call, work call. Work call. Between uh, breakfast and the work call was a period of about an hour to 90 minutes. Each man had his own way of passing the time. No security officer was in the dorm watching over us at that time. So we did pretty much whatever we wanted to do. What did we do with all this free time while we waited to go to work? There are some of the activities I remember. Uh, Some men would take a little nap in their bunks. Some would read in bed or just relax or sit around talking. Some would be out in the the yard walking around, talking or playing basketball. Some that were into homosexual activity would be off somewhere with their homosexual partner doing what they love to do uh, or were coerced into doing so. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Some men might be playing chess. With 60 men, everyone had something different to do to pass the time. When work call came, we filed out of the dorm and into the yard and waited for roll call. As the security man called the roll, we stepped outside the gate and onto the gravel road and lined up by twos to be counted. Mm-hmm. Once we were counted, we were loaded into the hootenanny. Hootenanny. That's right. You ain't heard that word in a long mm-hmm. time. Yeah. They were loaded into the Hootenanny, which at Angola was not a collection of folk singers, but a long open trailer with seats in it. Yeah, pulled by horses. Yep, with a shorter trailer hooked behind it for the inmate guards. And actually, these were pulled by a tractor. Oh, really? Yeah, they had a tractor. Uh, We were still called Big Stripes, but we no longer wore striped uniforms. We were dressed in jeans and blue shirts. Right. The Hootenanny delivered us uh, to the work site. The inmate guards riding behind our trailer wore khakis. They were armed with rifles. Mm -hmm. And their job was to shoot us if any of us tried to escape. Once we arrived at the field where we would be working, we were unloaded and went to pick up our working tools. A trustee prisoner was usually already waiting at the work site with the tools. Mm-hmm. The tools were kept in a small wooden house or traveling shed on wheels, which was a contraption pulled by two mules. The trustee kept the tools in the shed, issuing them at the beginning of the day and collecting them when we left the site. Obviously, right. y'all, they they need to make sure they get those tools you back. Otherwise, I mean, they, you're talking about hose and nice yeah. and, and, I mean, shit. That, They can kill each other with. That's right. So once we had the tools in hand, we went to work in the fields. We did the same kind of farm labor convicts had been doing in Angola for 100 years. As I remember it, the work we did varied according to the season of the year. If it were harvest time, we picked beans in the fields, butter beans, green beans, and purple whole beans. We worked in the okra patch, watermelon patch, cantaloupe patch, Irish potato, and sweet potato patches. We went into the fig orchid and picked the ripe right figs. Sometimes we picked pecans. We cut sugarcane and picked cotton. And when the plants were young and just started to grow, we used our hose to keep the rows clean. Gotta get the weeds out. That's it. We had to keep the grass off of the rows to stop it from choking the younger plants. We also did what was called quarter draining, opening up little trenches across the rows in the field when they were full of rainwater. The trenching allowed the water to drain much quicker so the rows could dry and we could go back to work sooner. Right. This work was done with shovels and hoes. We also dug and cleaned out ditches when they were getting clogged up. And if grass had grown up in the ditches, we used ditch bank blades with sharp curb blades to cut it out. Like okay, cane nice. knives. Yep. So they were, you know, pretty much killing themselves at work <laughs> yeah, well, remember, i mean that's what it was all is, about
1: you know, angle of being self-sufficient and all that this is what they fed them and everything and they sold the leftovers but back to the, the convict guards with rifles
2: why are so many dogs suffering from health issues actress katherine heigl who's helped save over sixteen thousand dogs through her foundation says she's seeing more health issues with the dog's joints odors and health than ever before This 20-minute video is packed full of tips that I've already started with my dog, Phoebe. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin and coat. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash bloodyangola and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Angola.
1: right. That's the one. Yeah. That's when it was what it was. That's right. So back to it. Hampton says, sometimes we were directed to go goose picking, which was not pulling feathers from a bird, but rather pulling grass from around the plants on the rows with our fingers. This was done by hand to ensure you did not cut the plant with a hoe. We also hoed the grass off the headland at the end of the row down to the bare dirt. This work made the site look a lot better to the eye. After the cotton harvest was over and all the cotton had been picked by hand, we had to pull the cotton stalks out of the ground by hand, put them in piles, and burn them. We would go into the wooden areas around the prison in search of the straightest, smallest tree branches we could find. We cut these branches from the trees to be used as plant poles in the fields. That's for beans and everything, y'all. We would return to the fields with the branches and stick them in rows to support, the, to support the plants as they grew. Unless the weather or some other circumstance disrupted our schedule, we followed the same routine five days a week. We worked from the time we had our tools in hand until and, and around 8.30 a.m. when we stopped for a coffee break that lasted for 15 or 20 minutes. Coffee was served in the fields in 10 cups. We sat down to drink it and we went back to work when the break was over. We would then work until around 10.30 or 10.45 a.m., depending on how far we were working away from Camp H. We had to be back in the camp for lunch at 11 a.m. The lunch break extended from 11 a.m. to 12 noon. At 12 noon, we would hear work call again, and we would load back onto the Hootenanny to go back to work. When we arrived at the work site, we would continue from where we left off in the morning, we would usually leave our tools stacked up in one place. When we went to lunch, so returning from lunch, it was find your own tools, which we marked rags or handkerchiefs and get back to work. About one thirty or 1.45, we had our afternoon coffee break. Again, lasting about 15 minutes and then continued working until the end of the day. We were supposed to be back in the camp by around 3 p.m. The work was not brutal in itself. It was monotonous, laboring in the fields day after day. While we worked, the armed inmate guards had a perimeter guard line set up around us to make sure no one tried to escape. The field foreman rode around on horseback, checking to see that we were doing a good job. We thought, and sometimes others would tell us, that we had the hardest working farm line in the prison. Working a farm line could be fun sometimes. Guys would be hollering across the field, playing with each other, kidding around, having everyone laugh at them, but other days were not fun at all. If it began to rain and we did not leave the work site early enough, we would get soaking wet. And when we returned to the camp, we would take our drenched clothes off, take a hot shower, and put on some dry clothes. Some days we experienced extra excitement. The excitement of an escape attempt. When one of the men would run from the farm line trying to escape, inmate guards would shoot at the would-be escapee, hitting him or scaring him to full escape. The prisoner who had run would be locked up in a cell, sometimes getting a few more years added to the sentence he was serving. Right? It was not uncommon for a fight to break out in the field. It could be about something that happened in the field or something that started in the camp and that's been carried over into the field. Sometimes a prisoner with a grievance in a camp would wait until he got in the field to get his working tool in hand. He could then go after his enemy with a tool and draw blood, maybe inflict a serious injury. The convict guards would shoot warning shots to break up the fight. If a man had a tool in his hand attacking another man, they would fire a warning shot. If the attacker did not drop the tool
2: and give up, the guard would shoot to kill all right, so I thought of security in the fields as being tight to pre- prevent us from trying to escape. But once the workday was done and we were back in the dorm after eating chow, it was a completely different story. For 12 hours until wake-up call the next morning, we were on a room. 60 men locked up inside the upstairs dorm with no security inside watching mm-hmm. us. You wouldn't think that, Man, y'all. I like the jungle. Yeah, the dorm was locked. Uh, the free man was in an office in another building, right. and he only came in to do a count, which I recall was done about once per hour. Right. It would be ten years or more later, I believe, maybe in the 1980s, when prison officials ended this practice and started putting security people inside the dorm. I recall this change occurred because of the killing, because of a killing at Camp C, one of the newer camps, but I do not remember the date. Uh, What happened in the dorm after the end of the work day? Well, between the end of work and the evening chow, we had about an hour. Uh, Some inmates showered before chow time, and others waited until after chow. Some waited until later in the night. It all depended on personal preference and what they had planned for the night. Within the next hour, we usually spent time doing nothing much, mostly just relaxing and taking it easy and enjoying our day of farm work being over. Once chow time was over, our time began. The 12 hours we had on our own, subject to interruption by counts only when the free man would enter and take role. Different inmates had uh, different choices on how to spend the hour until wake-up call the next morning. The dorm had a black-and-white TV so men could gather around to watch popular shows of the era, including westerns like Gunsmoke and Bonanza. The TV was useful in filling empty hours. When the convict guards were moved from Camp H, they took the the TV with them. When we first moved in it took about a month to replace the TV. Wow. With idle time, nothing to do and bored, tired men, uh tired men, problems were worse during this period. The return of the TV helped occupy the dead time and provide distraction. <laughs> The TV had a calming effect and reduced conflict and fight. So, y'all wonder why they they have the right to a TV. There it is. (laughs) That's right. And uh, and it would have that calming effect. The men who wanted to watch TV would vote to pick the program with only one TV you could watch or walk away. Sporting events on TV, particularly baseball and football, would draw a crowd on weekends. We. We watched action movies and crime dramas. Cartoons on Saturday morning were (laughs) popular, and I really enjoyed karate movies when I could find one. Table games were very popular, chess and checkers, and several card games for fun and for money. Poker, whist, rummy, and others that I can't remember. Men would get in trouble over gambling debts from the card games or from betting on sporting events on the TV. Nighttime hours were also time for men who wished to engage in homosexual activities Mm -hmm. to get together and take care of their business. Mm -hmm. In a dorm full of young, healthy, unsupervised men, I will say that many of the dorm residents engaged in such activities Mm -hmm. during their time in camp age. Some willingly and some unwillingly. Mm -hmm. Some rarely or only occasionally and some more often. Or all the time if they found a cooperative partner. Some of the prisoners settled into homosexual roles as whores or gal boys, as we referred to them. Men playing the part of women. They used to dress up uh, to look feminine and as sexy as possible and flaunt themselves around the dorm. Not all of them dressed like that or acted in this manner, though quite a few did. Some of them were trying to make the other inmates want to turn a trick with them to earn material Mm -hmm. possessions, while others would just be trying to look Good for their old man who took care of them. With only the bare necessities provided by the state in this era, we also used our free time to hustle the extras we wanted from trustees in the camp and free people who worked there. Food was important. We had a few electric skillets and pots in the dorm. With hustled ingredients, we could do our own cooking at night and on weekends. Or trustees would cook meals and sell them to the big striped convicts in the dorms. They had ways to get the food to us once it was ready. There were good meals cooked in those pots. They made life much more bearable. You know that just talks about everything we ever covered in Bloody
1: Angle over the years, and the Hampton continues. Some prisoners were bad off, possessing only what the state gave them, while some had more outside support for luxuries or were better able to hustle inside the prison for these luxury items. I had my own record player. It was a combination of radio and record player. It was an automatic. You could stack records on it, and they would drop one after the other to play. I had it hooked up to two 12-inch speakers. It was loud. <laughs> on holidays and in the daytime, we would plug it up on the walk outside the dorm and play records until late in the evening. It was loud enough for trustees across from us to hear. They would be dancing on the walk outside their dorm, and we'd be dancing on our walk, just having a lot of fun. When we were ready to be locked up at night, we would plug in the record player inside the dorm and continue for a while longer. (laughs) We kept the volume down and played it at the opposite end of the dorm from the TV. Lest you think we spent too much time in music and games, I must mention that another prime concern in the dorm at night was fighting. Fights broke out regularly, so often that prisoners and freedmen started calling Camp H the House of Shock. There was more mess going on at Camp H at that time than anywhere else on the farm. You must keep in mind that most of the inmates living in H had trouble living in other parts of the prison. When they were all thrown together with no security in the dorm, it was fight to see who was the strongest or the weaker. Most mm-hmm. most of the fights were fist fights, but sometimes a weapon was used or someone would be set on fire with gasoline or lighter fluid. Jeez, right? right. I, know, I know the dorm was full of deadly weapons. All sorts of homemade knives, cane knives, meat cleavers, real hatchets, tomahawks, and even real bayonets like they used in the army. Most fights did not involve the use of weapons. As I recall... And the whole time I lived in Camp H, only two men were set on fire. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> only two. Right? One seriously stabbed and one man killed. Most fights did not result in serious injury. Prisoners were still afraid for their safety and prepared to defend themselves at all times. A lot of men went to bed with weapons in their hand under the covers, not knowing when someone might try to sneak in an attack in the night. No real curfew was enforced. Men just passed the time as best as they could and slept as they were able, knowing they would be up at 5 a.m. to do the same thing over again the next day. It would not be until several years later that the prison brought into the idea that free people ought to be in the dorms at night to monitor behavior and enforce the rules. When I left Camp H., I transferred to a trustee prison in the main prison across the road for a brief time, only about a month or so. I was assigned to a working line, cutting grass and doing other chores around the main prison. I had promised I'd been promised a job in the prison's blood plasma bank where prisoners were able to sell their blood plasma at the time. And that became my next job years later. I returned to Camp H as a resident again at my own request. I'm not going to say it felt like going home, but I had old friends there I wanted to reconnect with. The old camp was badly deteriorated by this time, and it was shut down soon after my return around 1993. Shit, I I, I was there before 91. so I do remember this. Um, back to y'all. The men still living there at the time were transferred to the main prison, or to the other newer camps on the farm, and Camp H was closed for good. It is still standing, an empty shell, but few people left on the farm today remember when it was open and what men had to do to make a life there. Wow. It's fucking amazing, bro. Unbelievable. I love about that is, that again, y'all, that's from Hampton's point of view, yep. and it brings you right back to, I mean, was certainly, first of all, our patrons and, and uh, um uh, everybody that's been following us from the beginning and listening to all the back episodes, you know, we've touched on every single one of those topics. But to hear from this dude, you know what, he's really well written, right? Because I, mean, I could see it in my mind when he's saying everything from the, the, oh, yeah. the convict guards to the hoot nanny to how about the shed they, they hauled all the tools around on with the mules, you know, and then that thinking about them dancing outside the thing, he would, how are you going to have a record player with two 12 inch speakers? Right. Uh, but And, and that's what, how they live. But there were no, remember we told y'all this in other episodes, but they locked him in at night. There were no free people unless they came into account. That's and right. So you get a survival of the fittest motherfucker.
2: That's right. And uh, his recollection is, is really, uh, I hope he, continues his writing on yeah, that yeah and because uh, that is a that is a view of of Angola that you're only gonna get from the inmate right, right? I a mean, person the, that lived, lived
1: there for all
2: those years hundred yeah. percent and uh you know it's it's crazy that he was he was released on uh, uh you know we had a guy on this show That's that right. was the first, first one. inmate released under that juvenile sentencing uh life sentencing law yeah, that I they like, changed they gave him a chance for parole, gave him a chance for parole. And he was paroled, uh, this gentleman at, uh, 78 years old and yeah. over 60 years. That's crazy. In Angola, I've been alive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, it's just wrap your head around that 60 years 60 in years. prison. Uh, so, so hopefully he'll come out with some more stuff. And incidentally, we do want to mention, Hey, uh, New governor was sworn in right. this past Jeff weekend. Landry sure did, There's Jeff no, Landry. Oh boy, best shit's about to change. <laughs> That's exactly road. why I bring That's, that up.
1: It's coming down.
2: Yeah, and he is, y'all. For for those of you that aren't in Louisiana or or may just not pay attention to this sort of thing, uh, he is a uh, uh, coming for crime. Yeah, and and he came out yesterday. He said uh, that he's going to focus a lot on New Orleans and right. and the crime issues they're having, but. Uh, I can tell you that that the uh, you know whether you agree with it, don't agree with it, whatever the death penalty sentences are about to start getting carried out. Mm-hmm. And, I can and, promise and, you that. Whether you agree with it, or you don't agree with
1: it, it is the law. That uh, and you know he, he Jeff Landry is a you know, as he did all the years of attorney. You know, as hell even took them, We talked about it on the show. He even took on district attorneys and stuff, yeah. right? Just because he believes in the letter of the law. Well, right. the letter of the law states if you've been sentenced to death, the you know, state's responsibility is to it carry it out. To carry it out. And
2: yeah, yeah. it's going to be something
1: as a new sheriff now, as they so. say.
2: There's no doubt. And, uh, you know, uh, he was actually, y'all, uh, we've had a few days of bad weather here. So he was inaugurated a day early. Uh, his celebration or whatever, oh, and I'm I'm outside and not expecting anything. I was in the front yard and I hear. Shh. Man, and three F-15s fly right yeah, over right. my house. Yeah, it was yeah, like the, the Blue the, Angels the or something. Yeah. So they started circling because they're they're waiting for the Definitely. signal, I guess, to right. fly over the governor's mansion. And uh, I, they probably flew over my house at least twelve times. That's awesome. This is the coolest thing, man! Yeah. It was, you know, that's it was awesome. like an air show out yeah, there. That's cool. Uh, Interesting
1: to see what's going to go down in the Department of Corrections. Uh, I know he's going to make a lot of changes and
2: stuff, and and. Try to bring us into the next century, I guess. That's right, and so. he's he's firm with it. And his speech was all about, uh, you know, he he would like Louisiana to be known again as as the sportsman's paradise right. and the in Bienvenue, which is right. welcome, welcome. Yeah. and uh, and so I, I thought he did a great job on his speech for sure. Yeah. Anyway. So that again, I'm going to say thank you to our patron
1: members. Thank you. Uh, I mean. Uh, hopefully, you're enjoying all your bonus episodes and everything else that uh, that Jim prepares for y'all. And uh, if you can't be a patron, hey, we get it. But if you want to be one, go, you can go to com, type in Bloody Angola, or look on our social media. There's links to it. Um, it can't be one. We love you just as much. We thank you for listening, and liking, and sharing, and making Bloody and the number one history podcast in the world.
2: That's right. Yeah. And uh, and what he just said it share, share, share. Let people know yeah. they don't know. Uh, you know, if you're getting joy and out of the episodes that we bring to you, just tell somebody. Yeah. Um, and and, share and, and I was talking to somebody this weekend, and they were
1: like, oh you know what? I, I love your podcast stuff, but I don't really want to listen to Bloody and because I don't want to hear about." All the gore, and murder inside the prison. I'm like, mm, we really need to listen to it now because it's more historical. And mm-hmm. we tell all the uplifting stories. Voice, mean, we said from the beginning we we're going to tell something different and give all the different views.
2: That's right. We it. we're not just the the blood and guts and gore of, of right. prison life. We tell uplifting stories. We tell historical stories. Uh, you get a, you get the gumbo of everything on right. this podcast and, and, for sure. And we are definitely
1: this springtime going to take our tour and, and we get a shout out to, um, I won't say his name, but shout out to
2: him for (laughs) setting that up for us. And we appreciate it. Shout Shout out out the, uh, so that's it. We love y'all. That's it. And, uh, until next time I'm Jim Chapman and I'm Woody Everton, your host of bloody Angola, a podcast, 142 years in the making complete story of America's Bloodiest prisoner. Peace.
0: I walk a straight line, shackle chain. Oh, gruesome girty is calling my name.
1: Penitentiary. just as the hell gang rang